Welcome back to the second hour of Canucks Hour. Canucks Hour 2 here on Sportsnet 650. That'll be the case all week as we continue our bonus expanded coverage here uh, on Sportsnet 650. Myself, Jamie Dodd, and Canucks insider Thomas Drance. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. Coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Gemma Karsten-Smith from the Canadian Press will join us soon, uh, but we do have, we thought we might get some Brock Besser news, uh, Drance, and uh, just minutes ago, uh, the Canucks PR Twitter account uh, making an announcement. For Vancouver Canucks forward Brock Besser underwent successful hand surgery. He will return in three to four weeks. Besser hurt himself at practice on day three of Canucks training camp in Whistler, Saturday, September 24th. So there you go. Besser, successful hand surgery, a three to four week timeline per the Vancouver Canucks. Really tough luck for Brock. You oh, know, just man. brutal. And, you know, this is the third time in four years that Besser has dealt with some manner of injury during training camp. And the worst part about that is that they're completely unrelated, right? Like a hand injury. Um, you know, a core or back injury that occurred right before training camp opened last season. Um, you know, in, in 2019, it was an undisclosed lower body injury, but clearly not related to the <laughs> to either other injury. I mean, there it's just, it's an absolute smattering of completely unrelated freak incidences, right? And look, durability is a skill. And I know that Besser's got a lengthy injury history, but when you look through it, there's nothing connecting any of these it's not like there's a degenerative issue it's not like there's a weak part it's not like there's like a disc that he's yeah, the, always managing the knee keeps acting up they're or just, anything yeah they're just completely freak incidences and i mean a hand a hand surgery issue to me implies you know uh, puck or just something brutally unlucky and you know it's just too bad for a really skilled forward uh to always be sort of dealing with these uh we'll we'll unpack that more let's welcome Gemma karsten smith our friend and yours, onto the program. Yeah, and uh, just to catch everyone up on the timeline, three to four weeks, minimum of two regular season games, if the timeline holds potentially up to seven regular season games. And on that note, we will now uh, welcome into the show, she covers the Canucks for the Canadian Press, uh, Gemma Carson-Smith. Gemma, thanks very much for doing this. How are you? I'm doing better than Brock Besser. Yes. Uh, how are you guys? You didn't have successful hand surgery today, so <laughs> you've got that going for you. Uh, anyways, yeah, so, I mean, the breaking news just minutes ago, Gemma, we'll start there. What, what's your initial reaction uh, to hearing the, the Brock Besser injury report? This poor kid cannot catch a break. Like, if it's not family, really terribly difficult family stuff, it's a back injury or it's his um, – he had a rib injury at one point. He had it's one thing after another. I, I just want to see the poor kid healthy for a season and playing up to his potential. Yeah, no doubt about it. Another tough break. I think for a player that I think a lot of Canucks fans were really excited to see what he would do without some of those roadblocks and obstacles to deal with that you're uh, you're talking about, Gemma. And from a from a team perspective and from a Canucks perspective, I mean. Theoretically, they have the depth on wing to handle this, but we also saw Ilya Mikheyev leave the game with an injury. We'll wait to see what kind of news comes on him. What uh, what kind of an impact do you expect this to have early in the in the season uh, from a team wide Canucks perspective? Definitely not good news. Um, I think that line of uh, Miller, Besser, and Pearson was actually uh, doing some good things the first early days of training camp. There, uh, they had 
played together before, so they had that going for them. They had a little bit of chemistry. I think it just means another trip to the blender, and another trip to the blender is always going to create something uh, a little unknown, you know. Uh, you, you can you know what you have in all of these pieces, but you don't necessarily know how they all fit together. And to have to go back to the drawing board is definitely not ideal. Uh, it's great that they do have a few weeks, um, before the regular season kicks off here, and that they do have that, that depth. Um, but this is obviously not what anyone wanted uh, to start the season. Gemma, some of the standouts we're hearing from Canucks management's perspective at camp so far, Phil DiGiuseppe, Niels Hoaglander, Arthur Silovs, and there was one other guy. Who, oh, Jack Rathbone. Um, which oh, that guy. Of, yeah, oh, that guy. <laughs> which of them? Which of those names surprised you the most? Is there anyone else you'd add from what you saw up in Whistler over the three days of training camp or at last uh, yesterday's preseason opener? Uh, I thought that DiGiuseppe was super dynamic yet, uh, yesterday and on the final day of training camp. I thought that Jack Rathbone is working his butt off Um I wonder how many preseason games we see him get action in this year because I think not only does he want to play, but management wants to see what they have in him. I, I really like his pairing with Luke Shen. I think it's a very similar pairing to the Hugh Shen pairing that uh, did some good things last year. Uh, like, we all love Luke Shen. So, um, <laughs> he's, he's, he's just such a good guy. I, know, I love true. Luke Shen. Um, anyway. Getting a little carried away. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I thought I thought Jack Rathbone had a lot to offer at camp. I thought he he was really noticeable yesterday in yesterday's game. Sometimes for the wrong reasons, but often for the right reasons, and that's nice. Um, the guy that really impressed me in yesterday's game was Pod Colvin. Um, did Pod Colvin not become like a much more physical player over the summer? Did you guys see when he leveled Lucic in the first like five minutes? It was amazing. Yeah. Um, so I think that he's he's become a bigger guy. I think he's become more confident, and I think that we're, we should expect big things from him this season. And the thing I love about Luke Shen and his role on the team now, Gemma, is that he has a very, very specific role, which is when the Canucks have a, a young, dynamic, offensive left-shot defenseman, they get paired with Luke Shen, and he helps shepherd them into the NHL. We saw it with Quinn Hughes, and uh, it looks like we're seeing it again with Jack Rathbone, which is a pretty nice situation for Jack Rathbone to be in, to have that uh, that rock on the pairing with Luke Shen. Luke Shen, team dad. He's taking over the Chris Cannon team dad um, role. I don't know if he's also supplying tacos at his home, but, um, yeah, he's, he's taking over the uh, ten of dad mantle. mantle. Hey, hey, Gemma, one of the questions I think going into Whistler, and, and you know, we heard the, the players fielded this question a lot, kind of what they were expecting from a Bruce Boudreau training camp. How do they think it would be different? We talked to Bruce Boudreau about it. Now that it's in the books, I mean, what what was your impressions of a, a Bruce Boudreau training camp and, and kind of how they uh, how they started off the season and what they were trying to emphasize? Yeah, I thought even without the bag skate, it was uh, very high-paced. Um, I was happy to not see anyone puke because – um, I'm one of those people who pukes if if I say puke, so oh, no. uh, probably good for everyone. Um, <laughs> Been a tough couple of years yeah. for you, Gemma. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, <laughs> more on that later. Uh, anyway, I think that we saw, I, it was good to see a lot of systems work. I think that we've heard so much about systems coming into this camp. Uh, to see what, what that looks like on the ice was interesting, and I'm, I'm very intrigued to see how it plays out over the next few weeks here as we uh, move through the preseason games. Gemma, 
among maybe the lesser known like prospects, AHL guys, was was there anyone that caught your eye over the course of Canucks training camp? Um, I so I was actually um, impressed by Sil- Silvas. Sil- mm-hmm. Silvas. I ever since they spelt it wrong on his jersey that one night, I have been very confused about what his last name is. Anyway, <laughs> I I think I was really impressed by him last night. I was impressed by him. Uh, up in Whistler, I think that he's got a lot to offer, and he's he's challenging for that number one role in Abbotsford and for a potential call up uh, to the to the main team uh, if injuries hit this year. Uh, in conversation here at Canucks Hour with Gemma Carsten Smith, she covers the Canucks for the Canadian Press. One of the big storylines, obviously, going into training camp and the preseason, Gemma, is how the Canucks will manage their blue line. I mean, we all know, you know, they, they wanted to make changes. They would like to upgrade uh, the talent there. They haven't really been able to do that. Really, the only new face is Danny DeKaiser, who's there on a PTO. You know, we heard from Bruce Boudreaux that he thought maybe DeKaiser was a little bit nervous early in the game last night. What have you seen from DeKaiser so far, and, and how would you rate his chances of, of sticking around and, and factoring in for this team? Honestly, not great. Um, I think Danny DeKaiser's future with this team will depend on Tucker Pullman's health. Um, mm. I think that those are two big question marks. So the Thursday of training camp, I thought that Tucker Pullman looked awful. Um, I thought that he looked basically stationary out there on the ice. Um, and it was a little bit scary, um, but he improved throughout training camp. You saw him uh, really start to jump up in the rush. He he, he uh, got a little bit of um, more act more active in the scrimmage uh, on Friday, I believe it was. Uh, so I think that he improved. I don't know though if he's healthy enough to be in an NHL lineup, and that's not something that w- any of us are going to know until uh, a lot closer to opening night. Now, if he isn't in the lineup, then they'll need a Danny DeKaiser. If he is, if if we have Pullman, do if the Canucks have Pullman, do they need DeKaiser? I don't know um, because he also looked quite. Um, uh, what's another way of saying slow? Uh, he, he, <laughs> a nicer way of saying slow. He looked a little slow last night. Um, I, I don't know that it was nerves. I think it might be the fact that he's on the. Uh, downside of the professional athlete Hill, and he's had back surgery. He was stay-at-home defenseman in the first place. I I don't know that he's what this team needs, but this team obviously couldn't get what needed out on the open market. So I, I guess you, you get what you get, and you shuffle those deck chairs until uh, something makes sense. Gemma, was there any commentary from any Canucks player that really stood out to you at training camp? Uh, for those of Uh, For those of our listeners who don't know, and how could they, you know, you and I spend a lot of time talking about what we hear and sort of trying to interpret exactly what we thought they meant or uh, just what what it means in the in the wider sense. Was there anything said at Canucks training camp that really stood out to you that made your ears perk up and that you thought was particularly interesting? I thought what Hoaglander said about the signings that the team made in the offseason was interesting. And and Bruce referenced it later the same day, saying that uh, Hoaglander obviously looked at who had been signed and was kind of counting, ooh, there are this many places, and where do I fit in here? So I think that that was a form of motivation for him, and he's used it as a form of motivation, and he's come out strong in the first uh, few days of training camp here. So uh, I think he knows that uh, his place in the lineup was precarious and then he has to work real hard to 
cement it if he wants to stick with the first team here. Well, and for for Neil Hoglander, obviously you don't want to see it happen like this, but all of a sudden now uh, with Brock Besser out for the at least the beginning of the regular season, you know they're going to need all of that extra skill and depth on the wing that they can. Uh, so as you know, already having a good start to the training camp and preseason, and Neil Hoglander now certainly looks to be in the plans at least early in the season uh, for the Canucks as well. A couple of the other big early preseason and training camp storylines uh, that I wanted to ask you about, Gemma. And and the first is kind of the X factor, the mystery man, uh, Andre Kuzmenko, coming over from Russia. Nobody really knows what to expect. We've all gotten to know he's a big personality right away. We can see that with the smile and and everything. What have you liked or not liked? What have your overall impressions been of Kuzmenko from an on-ice perspective so far? The shot is impressive. The shot is really impressive. I don't don't think you can argue with that. Uh, Less impressive is the fact that he is sucking wind after some of those conditioning drills. Um, uh, after some of the battle drills, uh, mm-hmm. the losing side would have to uh, skate lines, and Kuzmenko would be doubled over on his stick after uh, the first line. So I think he's got some some work to do in terms of his conditioning, in terms of his foot speed as well, uh, in order to be able to keep up. I think last night in the game you saw he had trouble keeping his shift length down, um, and it's understandable you're a star coming in from the KHL, but you're not a star here in the NHL yet. So don't be trying to be out on the ice for 60, 70 seconds at a time. It's just not going to work for you. So I think he's got a, a lot of work to do. I think um, if he can do it, that's that's great, and he could do big things. But it's a big if. Um, it's, a, it's a giant shot. It's a giant skill uh, set that he possesses. It's just a question of how it translates into the NHL game. Gemma, really appreciate the time. Uh, the best. Obviously some, some big breaking news, so we'll let you get back to your actual job, and hopefully we'll talk <laughs> again soon. Thanks, Gemma. Appreciate it. That Thanks, is Gemma, uh, Gemma Carsten-Smith, who, of course, covers the Canucks for the Canadian Press. You can follow her on Twitter, at G Carsten-Smith. And if you are just joining us uh, just about 20 minutes ago, Canucks announce Brock Besser has underwent successful hand surgery he will return in three to four weeks. That's the timeline given uh, by the Vancouver Canucks. A three to four week return for Brock Besser. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. And we have no shortage of reaction coming in on the Brock Besser news. And this one kind of sums it all up. Unsigned. Wow, I was so excited a week ago with development and training camps. And all of a sudden it feels like we won't get the start we need to the season because of these injuries. Uh, and it feels like it will impact the overall season. And look, I mean, it remains to be seen how many games we miss. It could be as few as three, you know, two technically, I think, on the three-week three week timeline. But I'd be, I'd be surprised if it ends up at that. But theoretically, he could be back, you know, for their fourth game of the season against the Blue Jackets on October 18th. Could be a little bit longer than that as well. So it's not the kind of injury, again, if the timeline works out and all of that, that on its face sinks a team season but I mean look we just finished talking with your colleague at the athletic Dom Lucision last segment transfer about yeah the Canucks are very much going to be in the mix for the playoffs but they're also one of those classic teams where the margins are extremely extremely thin and losing a player like Brock Besser and I think there was a lot of reasons to be excited about what Brock Besser could do for the Canucks this year having it not get off to that clean positive start that everybody around the Canucks has talked about not just for Brock Besser individually, but for the team, I can understand the kind of immediate, oh my goodness, here we go again, 
uh, reaction now that uh, now that we have officially heard the news on Brock Besser. Yeah, this is there's a lot of complications. I'm just furiously modeling sure. things because here's one thing to keep in mind. Okay, injuries are. Oh, am I going to get into cap minutia? You know I am. Oh, you yeah. know I am. That's what I do. The moment I hear this, right, the moment I hear of any player injury, and this applies equally to Besser and to Justin Dowling, right? Like, it doesn't matter the magnitude. The first thing I start to do, especially when it happens during training camp, is try to figure out the machinations, how this changes Vancouver's decision-making in terms of getting to the opening night roster, right? Their their numbers, their 23-man lineup, and, and figuring out exactly how... It complicates them maximizing their furland capture because that's everything, right? Like you need to get as much of that three point five million in captured space as you can. Otherwise, managing this roster over the course of the season is going to be tough, like really tough. Like play a man short, tough if you don't get the full three point five. Every player hurt over the course of training camp. So this applies now to Besser for sure and to Dowling, who is week to week with an upper body injury. Mm-hmm. And it could apply to Mikhaev, depending on exactly how this all plays out, right? Those players have to be accounted for. They don't just disappear, right? They don't just just, just disappear. And to go on LTI and get cap relief for them requires them to miss 10 games. Well, if Besser's timeline's three to four weeks, you're not putting him on LTI no. because if he's ready to come back way sooner than that, you need him in the lineup. Well, like, this is a key player. Even if he's ready to come back after three weeks, again, that's missing three games, potentially. Well, but even that is almost impossible to do because... If you need the roster spot, you put him. You have to put him on IR, right? And mm-hmm. once he goes on IR, he's out. He can't return until the eighth day following October 11th. So if he goes on IR, you're looking at four games. You're looking yep. at him returning after the back-to-back against Columbus and Washington, which is another wrinkle here. Again, this is why my first, my base reaction, especially during training camp, is to go back to the numbers and go back to the cap because it impacts so much in terms of when a player can return, right? Um Four weeks missing seven games, that's not an LTI situation. But if it's an IR situation, and you wouldn't necessarily have to, maybe you don't need the roster spot. Um, maybe the Canucks only carry 21 or 22 bodies over the course of the season. Um, then you maybe don't put him on IR at all. You keep him on the main roster, and then he'd be el- eligible to come back whenever. But these are things that you have to account for now. So Vancouver's cap picture and their route to maximizing their capture with Furland is is really muddy and could get even muddier in the event that Mikhaev's injury is of any duration. Um, and this sort of just ups the stakes. Like, all of a sudden, you're looking at, you know, I, I know I've been talking a lot about the Dakota Joshua, Kyle Burroughs sort of thing, right? With additional high-salaried bodies on IR that need to be replaced. And remember, IR frees up a roster spot but does not, not free cap up space. cap space. Yeah. Um, you know, are you at the point where it becomes it has to be Joshua Wave because he costs seventy k more, and that seventy k might make a huge difference in terms of what you can capture? I mean, these are the types of decisions that I'm sure uh, in the halls of power off Griffith's Way are being wrestled with today. And you know, we're only we're only a few days in now. Besser's absence is huge. This guy is key, a key part of Vancouver's power play. A key part of their top of line, their Vancouver's first line. line. He's probably their most reliable right wing from a matchup perspective. 
The club is deep at forward, though, right? I mean, we're not far removed from discussing will Niels Hoaglander make the team. Well, if Besser's missing the start of the season... He's making the team. The answer's yes. He's making the team. He was making it anyway, but now for sure, right? So, you you know, losing Besser is painful. Losing Besser when you've got Niels Hoaglander to plug in is sort of a little bit more tolerable. If you lose Besser and Makayev for any stretch of time, it's going to be definitely hard to get out to a to a quick start. And yet, you know, Vancouver's first opponents are Philadelphia and Columbus, right? Like, yeah, there's some Ed- games in there Edmonton, that you should still win. Edmonton, Philly, uh, the Capitals. Well, I didn't mention Edmonton and the Capitals because they're good. Right. Okay, but, but I, I was just giving the, so that first five-game road trip. It's yeah. Edmonton. Philly, the Capitals, the Blue Jackets, Minnesota, which is tough. Then you come home and you host yeah. Buffalo. But you should be able to, you, you know, you shouldn't be coming home from that road trip. Even if you're down Besser and Mikhaev and one more guy, you shouldn't be coming home from that road trip any less than two and three. And, you know, that's fine. That's fine. That's that's not what's going to crush you by any means. But the Besser injury is really bad news for Besser himself. Like, you hate to see it. Oh, that that's my first thought. It's 100%. just come on, Come like on. him saying at training camp, one of the quotes of training camp, or, or was I'm going to get to thirty Milford or wherever it was, but uh, I think it was training camp. You know, is it, are you going to score thirty goals? This is the year. This yeah. is the year. You know, he wanted it just as much as all of the fans oh. wanted to see it. And durability is the key part of that. Now, with one thing, one thing I also just want to urge everyone is Besser's had a lot of bad injury luck, but that, in my opinion, doesn't necessarily make him injury prone. It feels worse when you think about Besser's career to this point, than it actually is. Like, Besser's only missed, on average, 11 games a season. Doesn't that seem low, considering all that he's been yes. through with, like, the bench door injury and on and on? I mean, it it's felt like he's missed a lot of time, but really, 11 games a year on average. Um, the game totals are shorter because of the pandemic, because there have been so many, you know, it's, it's 11 games on average a year. So he's Assuming if he'd played in a normal world for most of his career, his his games missed, well, you know, would be in the seventies. He'd like be averaging average, he'd be averaging seventy games a yeah. year. Basically. Now it's it's far lower than that, but mostly that's because one of the seasons was fifty six, and he played all fifty six in that season, right? So anyway, tough start to the year for Besser personally. You hate to see that the Canucks do need him back. They do need him at his best. Uh, I think we need to be cautious about overreacting to. Um, you know, the, the idea of him being injury prone, these are unrelated injuries. I have no zero long-term concern about Besser's injury history. I think that's the right way to approach this overall. Uh, but hopefully he gets back. Hopefully he gets back in his, you know, his shooty battle winning high hockey IQ best yeah. in short order, because this team needs it. Yeah. And I want to talk more about how the Canucks uh, adapt. What, what what some of the changes we could see? We'll take a quick break, but I will say and this text, uh, this thought has come in a little bit in the text in the box as well. You know, obviously you hear hand and with Brock Besser. And I think for a lot of fans immediately you go to, okay, well, even if he gets back, what, if anything, does this mean for his shot? Right. And will, will we see, uh, that Brock Besser shot that, you know, not necessarily, I, I think people have pointed out, you know, you haven't really seen it at its absolute peak necessarily consistently from since his rookie year. But uh, again, anytime you hear the hand, there's going to be that question. Look, I'm not, uh, I'm not enough of a, uh, I don't know, biomechanics expert to, to really touch on how whatever the hand situation is, is going to affect his shot. But uh, I understand the concern. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text box. Keep your thoughts Coming in, we will talk more about 
Brock Besser, how the Canucks replace him at least early in the season in the lineup. I want to talk about the power play, special teams in general, a little bit for the Canucks as well. Final segment of the show, it's Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, final segment of the second Canucks Hour here today. Another extended bonus edition. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Trance, who also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com, coming to you live from the Kintec Studio. 650-650, always interested to hear your text. I do love this one. Uh, unsigned, reacting, I, I think, to the Brock Besser news. How are the vibes, guys? Are we making the playoffs? <laughs> well, the vibes were a lot better 24 hours ago, but uh, coming off uh, a couple of split squad losses last night and now the Brock Besser news. I will say this. I don't know about the vibes around the team from management, the coaching staff, players. The vibes in our Dunbar Lumber text line are not great right now. People are uh, upset, understandably so, to a certain degree, uh, to hear about the Brock Besser news. Um I want to talk about the actual kind of lineup implications about this a little bit here, Drancer, both at five on five, even strength and on the power play. But starting with even strength, you know, one of the things Bruce Boudreau was very emphatic about coming into training camp was the desire to, you know, have those opening night lines together right away and not mix them up. Right. Hey, if, if we're, we're going to sit a whole line out for a preseason game, right, we're not going to have two of them in and one of them out or anything like that. Because we want to build this chemistry. We want to establish the way the lines work so we can hit the ground running at the start of the season. And you and I talked about this in Whistler. You know, Miller, Pearson, Besser, just such an easy fit because they played well together last year. They can dominate the game down low. They're your best, maybe your best bet to have a a kind of tough minute matchup line with Pearson and Besser both being very reliable. And now I wonder, I look at it, is just as simple as, all right, Niels Hoaglander, you're your next guy up. You're you're slotting in right there, or do you kind of have to start thinking about we're going to mix up all of the lines and see? You know, as Gemma Carson Smith said earlier, uh, move put them all back in the blender. Even though then you're not just mixing one line up and, and losing that the early chemistry you've started to build. You're you're potentially doing it for three lines. Well, you're going to be doing it for two lines anyway. I mean, with Mikhaev. Yeah, I mean yep. we have to wait to see what resolves with Mikhaev, right? I mean. It could be as easy as Hoaglander goes up, although I don't know that Hoaglander would be the choice necessarily considering what Besser is, right? You have to consider that, like, I read a lot into, no matter what the organization's public comments on the matter, the fact that JT Miller got put with two guys that he played 200 minutes with last season, but also two guys whom he played tough minutes with last season, two of the three most reliable two-way wingers that this team has— strongly suggests to me that the Canucks do want that line in matchup minutes, mm-hmm. right? They want Miller to be in that role where, you know, he's playing the opposition's best on a game-to-game basis with with line mates who can help him dominate the territorial game, control the game down low, like beneath the hash marks, right? And if one of those three wingers who you really trust in those minutes is gone, you know, is Hoaglander, who's... Played really well at training camp, but the commentary on him from multiple head coaches now has been, hey, he's got some defensive details to learn. Is he the natural fit to move up onto that line? Like, I'd I'd probably suggest he's not. 
And then Mikhaev, who would be the third of those wingers, mm-hmm. looms large because Mikhaev might be the guy who jumps up with Hoaglander joining Kuzmenko and Pedersen. We've seen that Hoaglander and Pedersen have good chemistry. That looks like a more offensively calibrated line, a more traditional middle six line. Like that makes sense to me as sort of the change. If you have to make two changes, though, I, I mean, I honestly am sort of at a loss. Is it Pod Colson that moves up? Do you go Pearson, Miller, Pod Colson? Do you put Garland there just because he's a veteran, right? I, yeah, you know, it doesn't profile necessarily as that, but yeah, he's not but Pod he Colson. Can do he's it. Not, he can do it. That's I, the thing. It, it wouldn't be your first choice, but Connor Garland helps his teams outscore their opponents five on five. Like that, it just is what it is. It's not. It doesn't always look the way you think it should look when a player's playing checking hockey or what have you, but it doesn't matter. He's got the puck so much. His teams consistently outscore their opponents five on five. I'd actually love to see what Garland could do in a primo offensive role, to be totally honest with you. But I also saw what Horvat, Garland, and Pod Colson appear to be cooking at the moment, and I want more of that, right? Like, I don't, I kind of want to see that line get a fair bit of run. I love the idea of the Canucks putting their best primary playmaker in Garland. Uh, onto a line with two lefties, right? Like, it it looked good to me. There mm-hmm. was an awful lot that I liked about how that line has come together over the course of the four days we've seen them really skate together consistently. But, yeah, I mean, these are the types of tough decisions that the club is going to face, and the ramifications up and down the lineup are significant. I think right off the bat we know that, you know, Hoaglander's sort of the most obvious candidate to jump up and get a really long look and maybe a really premium look as a result of what we've seen happen here uh beyond that beyond that you know the Mikhaev injury status now and he's being evaluated today the organization uh or club sources told me earlier today um you know that's going to loom really large here we'll know an awful lot more about how this looks once we have a better sense of exactly where Mikhaev's health is at and how much time he will miss if any if Mikhaev is healthy and good to go, certainly for the start of the regular season, it becomes a lot less complicated, right? Because it's just, okay, you have nine forwards that make sense as top nine guys. It's maybe not your ideal configuration with them, and maybe some guy, okay, well, we don't love him in that role, but we'll put him there, whatever. But it's those nine guys, and you just you put them in some combination and you figure it out. Obviously, if Mikhaev can't go, or he has to miss some time as well, I mean, then you're looking at bumping somebody from... You know, whether, I don't know, is it Phil DiGiuseppe, right? Who's been, who's impressed man? Sheldon Drive. You know, Sheldon Drive. But you is get it, into that class that's, really That's fast. where you start to go. And then all of a sudden. Niels Amon, right? Yeah. Like, I mean. All of a sudden, one of Miller, Horvat, and Pedersen, your strength down the middle is going to be playing with, yeah, Sheldon Drive or Phil DiGiuseppe. That, that's just where you end up. And, man, that is a far, far cry from where this team wanted to be. The hope there is that those players, if it does come to that, are strong enough right, and talented enough, and you're kind of banking on them to be these types of players that they can survive. They can kind of lift whatever player ends up on their wing and still be effective, at least for short periods but, in the regular season. But you're season. right. You could you could quickly end up considering going to a more traditional top six, bottom six formulation, which requires moving one of Pedersen, Miller, or Besser, mm-hmm. or sorry, Pedersen, Miller, or Bo Horvat to the wing, right? And, you know, one thing, one thing that I noted, I was looking at data on Besser with Pedersen over the course of training camp. Partly because I think I said, you know, long-term I see that as their best right. fit. But, uh, you know, and I got some pushback on that. And and I noted that, you know, they'd scored four, they'd outscored the opposition by 14 goals with Besser and Pedersen on the ice together at 5-on-5 five five over the past three seasons. 
And as I was looking through how Pedersen has performed with various line mates, like one number that stood out to me was, and and this is from memory, but it's it's roughly accurate. I might be off, give or take a couple goals here and there. But with Pedersen and Miller on the ice together, the Canucks have outscored the opposition 74 to 46 over the last, or 47. I think it was 74 to 47. I think they were reciprocal numbers over the course of the past three years at five on five. Well, that seems good. Not bad. And, and actually, Not bad. and actually, in all other minutes, the Canucks have actually been outscored with Pedersen on the ice without Miller and with Miller on the ice without Pedersen, right? And so, you know, one thing I sort of wonder is if you end up in a situation where both Mikhaev and Besser are hurt and your top nine, that strength of your team top nine logic is undermined structurally, do you consider just loading up and beating opponents at the top of the lineup? Because the Canucks do have a pair of guys playing on different lines at the moment, barely played together last year. One of them decked the other at training camp, but I don't think there's anything to it. Uh, Nonetheless... Do you consider that? Do you consider creating a can opener at the very top of your lineup? Because Vancouver does also have the talent to do that. And you can't forget that that's a weapon in Boudreaux's quiver, regardless of whether or not it's plan A. Yeah, it's, again, pending Mikhaev's status, it's it's the kind of thing that you... You have to at least talk about, right? And you have to, okay, map it out. How would it work? How would we use the guys? Who would they play with? Yeah, exactly, right? You have to go down that road a little bit and start to think about exactly what it would look like. And then you're back to, you know, Curtis Lazar and Jason Dickinson as your centers in your bottom six. Not where anyone wants to be, but maybe that's the best in a short tight, short, uh, short window to do. Well, and then you mentioned the power play. Yeah, let's get into that. And Kuzmenko played net front for the Canucks on their makeshift PP1 that was absent both Miller and and Hughes last night. And look, I thought he looked really good. If there was one spot where I would say, oh, Kuzmenko looked really good there, down low, net front guy on the power play, I think there's a lot to like about how he profiles down there. Not just in terms of the shot, not just in terms of the burly stocky frame <laughs> that he that he's got his willingness to play in traffic but just in terms of his overall awareness and the evolution of the net front guy into being more than just a puck retrieval specialist but also you know someone who's playmaking uh is is key to opening up a variety of different lanes for a variety of their teammates i thought kuzmenko looked great great at the net front in in my first sort of view of him there and that's without much in the way of practice right like it's not like the Canucks had set breakouts ready to go or oh, or set they, plays or we, did, we didn't see a second of special teams work in Whistler no not no a second. no and why would we? Yeah. we there's 58 guys on the ice but yeah. but yeah I mean I thought that was a very promising start for Kuzmenko on the power play I would expect that if Besser misses time we're gonna see Kuzmenko open the year on power play one um, in that net front role with the with the predictable four up high, four lefties up high. Um, and then on power play two, I wonder if we'll see Pod Coles in there or Connor Garland. Mm. And again, Connor Garland at the net front is something that Boudreaux and Garland themselves have discussed in the past. Garland, again, not your traditional, not, not what you think of in your mind's eye when you think of what does a net front guy look like, but... We saw it last night, too, on the game-tying goal. Like, the way he chokes up on his stick, the way that he gets to pucks, you know, using that low center of gravity, the way that he battles and competes, like, there's something there. And especially in a contemporary NHL environment where the sort of down-low guy in a 1-3-1 is increasingly important for their playmaking ability, like, Garland's a great playmaker. In fact, that's his best attribute. 
I think there's something there. I think there's something to like there, and I'll be curious to see if they try it out once we see special teams work, which I'd assume we see maybe Friday, you know, probably later this week uh, at Canucks practices over the course of, yeah, the next four or five days. From a big picture perspective on the Canucks power play, you know, it sounds kind of ridiculous to say after a split squad game where they went, oh, for like infinity on the power play. They have a lot of talent. They have a lot of talent. I thought they looked great. Yeah, they have a lot of talent that works well in that environment. And the thing with the the Canucks is elsewhere, you know, at 5-on-5, even with the forwards, and I like their forward group, obviously on defense, you like individual pieces, but there's also questions about how it's going to fit together. On the power play, man, that top five, it's a really clean fit. It's a really clean fit. Even Brock Besser might be the only one where you're like, oh, is he the perfect net fit? Oh, I think, and I, I but think I liked he, his work there. I think he answered a lot of those questions late in the yeah, year. Yeah, and then everywhere else you look at it, you know, Quinn Hughes, perfect guy up top. Pedersen with the one-timer. Miller running things from the, like, Horvat in the middle. It's just such a clean but, fit, and, and they're all Quinn really Hughes, good at their roles. And Quinn Hughes efficiently moving the puck to, you know, better shooting teammates yeah. and being just an absolute entry machine, right? I mean, there's no one you'd rather have gaining the line and maybe the entire league. Maybe there's a couple guys like a Kale McCarr and a Roman Yossi, but it's like that's the class yeah. that Quinn Hughes belongs it's in just, in terms of his neutral it's just, zone work. It's the, it's, the per, it's the combination of talent and fit that they don't really have anywhere else. And so it's going to be really disappointing to me if they don't have a high-end power play. And then you look at what they can potentially do on power play too, right? And let's say Besser comes back. You've got Kuzmenko, you've got Garland, you've got OEL, who has a great track record on the power play throughout Pod his Coles career. Pod Colson potentially somewhere, and then you kind of, you know, fill in the blank with the whoever's going to be the fifth guy there. Well, they, but that's not easy. Like, okay. who, you know, I don't think you, like, Pierce, if it's Pearson, you've got to have him down low. But if you've got Kuzmenko, I don't think you want him down low. Yeah. Um, Hoaglander would be the other... Hoaglander would seem to be the other option, mm-hmm. but, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure. We haven't seen him do a ton of power play work in the NHL. Pod Colson, you know, again, I, I don't know exactly how PP2 fits together. That's another thing we'll learn more about, although we're going to learn more about it in a qualified kind of way, presumably since the Canucks are unlikely, well, at least over the course of the preseason, are not going to have, you know, their full deck. Of cards. Well, and I think, you know... You were talking about Connor Garland being potentially net front, you know, maybe in Besser's absence on power play one, although I think that'll be Kuzmenko. If Kuzmenko's not on power play two, maybe Garland fills in that role. But because of his playmaking, I think you kind of need him on the half wall as well, on that second power play. You may, yeah. You know what I mean? And he showed that off last night as well. He is a really smart passer. He's good there. And him and OEL have actually a fair bit of chemistry. They've played together now for Garland's entire career, right? I mean, there's... You could see it occasionally on PP2 last year, so you know that might be that might be where we end up uh, where we end up landing once we see Jason King, who runs the power play, sort of work with his guys over the course of you know again. I'd expect it later this week. Like I'd expect later this week we'll see some power play work, um, like significant power play work in a, in a practice setting. I mean, we could see it tomorrow. We could see it Thursday. You never know. But yeah, I would be a little bit or Tuesday or Wednesday. I'd be a little bit surprised. I bet we see. Um, I bet we see more team level stuff uh, once they get down to a more NHL looking group, um, you know, later today. And then and then I, I'd bet we see it sort of a little bit later. If if history holds anyway, I'd expect to see it Friday and or uh, early next week. Yeah. And it's the funny the funny thing with the power play work is you, because you <clears throat> excuse me, because you feel really good about it. It's probably not going to be a priority uh, for this team as much as you also want to make sure you're getting it, giving it time to get kind of finely tuned and, and warmed up and ready to go for the start of 
the regular season. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, uh, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. It's the uh, final few minutes here of Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650. Again, if you're just joining us, Brock Besser underwent successful hand surgery today, three to four week timeline uh, for his return, which puts him in the missing somewhere in the neighborhood of three to seven games uh, in the regular season for the Vancouver Canucks. Again, get your thoughts in 650, uh, 650 and uh, lots of people texting in, you know, basically uh, I, th- I believe there was the one that came in from, uh, from Jeffro that I've lost here, but I'm trying to find, but man, like basically the more things change, the more they stay the same. Another key player injured to start the season. <laughs> oh, it's for the Vancouver Canucks. In Vancouver. Yeah. My goodness. <laughs> Something went wrong for this team, for the Vancouver yeah. Canucks that was putting so much emphasis on getting off to a good start on, on proving that last year's start was the aberration. And you're telling me it might not work out exactly how they planned. Yes. That, uh, that is what we're uh, uh, we're ta- telling you. And Clayton texts in, and we should talk a little bit about this as well. Now, we don't know his status, but Clayton texts in, Mikheyev might be the bigger loss, in my opinion, harder to replace, and when he comes back, he's behind the eight ball with a new team. Now, we don't know, though. We don't know. We don't know if he's going to be out, but I do want to talk about Ilya Mikheyev uh, a little bit, because one thing is, you know, we're talking about the power play in Brock Besser, right? Okay, I, I still like their ability to have an effective power play, even if Brock Besser's not in the lineup to start the year. We all know how much they're banking on Ilya Mikheyev doing on the penalty kill, right? They're, they are counting on him to be an extremely key part of a hopefully much improved penalty kill. Again, we don't know, but that, whether, you know, even if he's in the lineup, there's a lot riding on Mikheyev's performance uh, to elevate what was um, a, a struggling penalty kill for much of last year. Yeah, Mikheyev's a really, really good penalty killer, an essential penalty killer. And yeah, losing him is tough. I mean, you end up, what, rolling out something like Lazar Miller and Pedersen Horvat yeah. without him? Pearson probably in the mix there, I would guess. Probably somewhere. as a third unit guy, yeah. right? Like, you know, Pearson and Joshua or Dickinson, something like that, as a, as a third uh, sort of unit guy. I mean, yeah, it's a big loss. No no doubt about it. No, no doubt about it. But... Yeah, I mean, the the other Mac- thing, Makai brings a lot of threat, four on five, but you need to be able to lose penalty killers. Like at the end of the day, if Makayev sinks your penalty kill, your penalty kill is not good. And and that's not to say that he's not an outrageously good penalty killer. He is. He's vital there. But the nature of killing penalties is to increase your injury risk. You need to be able to replace penalty killers. So uh, we'll see. We'll see. You know, it's too early on on Mikhaev. And, and one last thing I want to talk about. Canucks called this precautionary mm-hmm. on Saturday. Uh, Bruce Boudreaux referred to it as a day-to-day thing yesterday. The thing with the thing with injuries like this is when they were calling it precautionary at camp, probably was, right? Like, things swell, and it's hard to figure out what's wrong, and sometimes you don't even know, and sometimes it doesn't even hurt that much. And then further testing happens, further evaluation, and you realize that, oh, this is actually something we need to look at, take care of, um, need to in- need medical intervention to, to fix or, or it could get worse or you can't play through it or, you know, the pain tolerance part is just going to be impractical. Hockey injuries are so unpredictable. And I know in this market over the years, we've had a lot of um, 
a lot of these that have sort of been like maintenance day and then it becomes something else. Well, Brock Besser last season at about this time, right? right? And Quinn Hughes early in the year. Maintenance day and then he's missing a practice and, and on and on. But, you know, I, this is one of those particular um, talking points that I tend not to indulge in just because, you know, having worked up close with players and their injuries and how they get announced and how it gets processed, um, there's things evolve so fast when it comes to the human body playing a really dangerous sport. And, and, you know, that's often why these things can look a little bit odd from the outside, but actually be completely understandable if you're close to the situation. And, and I will say with the Besser situation, let's, let's keep the time frame in mind here, right? The, the first inkling that there was anything amiss with Brock Besser was what, like 1240 on Saturday when he wasn't part of the scrimmage there in Whistler. And, you know, less than 48 hours later, we've got an announcement about surgery. So it's not as if this was like weeks of mystery. Oh, what's going on with Brock Besser? They're not telling us anything, right? There was precautionary day-to-day yesterday and then an announcement. Again, it's I, I understand the kind of callback in, in people's minds to previous situations with this team, but if you just look at this one and how it developed, it seems very, very reasonable to me, right? They, they kept him out. They looked more into it, and they said, oh, he needs surgery. We're going to get him the surgery here, uh, and there you go. This is this all happened very, very quickly. It's not something that's been hanging over no. the team as a, a kind of cloud of mystery for, for a long time here. It's fair and a good point, and anyway, we, we hope that he's on the quicker end of that timeline, and, uh, you know, as we mentioned a little bit in the last segment, right, The this is – as the injuries mount, and it's not just Besser, it's also Dowling, things get really muddy in terms of how this team maximizes that furlan capture mm-hmm. and gets to their opening night lineup from a cap perspective. You know, you you can't lose 225K or whatever because of Dowling on IR. In terms of what you're able to navigate this season with, things are just too tight in the flat cap era. This team has too much dead money on the books with Holpe, with Halak, with Vertanen for one more season. Um, you know, it could really impinge on this ability. Like, I think this team's going to struggle to carry 23 men on the 23-man roster anyway this year. Um, so, you know, losing every little bit of edge cap-wise could have, you know, really tough consequences for this group as this season goes on. Well, and the other thing I'll say is it definitely, it heightens the stakes of some of the things we're going to be watching for the remainder of preseason, right? Because, hey, at training camp, we were kind of laughing about it. Yeah, Phil DiGiuseppe is another standout, but... That's probably he's probably still going to go to Abbotsford and play for the Abbotsford Canucks. Well, now all of a sudden, I mean, his performance here in the ma- remaining uh, preseason games really matters, right? Because they've got a hole at forward. Niels Hoaglander, how much trust he can earn, really, really matters in these preseason games. I, I know the club's really happy with Phil DiGiuseppe, and maybe they even look at him as something of a known quantity that they didn't need to get looks at. But it was odd to me that when Mikhaev left the lineup, he wasn't the guy who jumped up. It felt like they tried almost everyone else there. Like we saw Sheldon Dries, we mm-hmm. saw you know. Uh, lots of other players get that look. We never really saw him get that look. I can't tell if that's a positive or a negative. <laughs> you know, I just don't understand if that was because, well, we don't need to see more. You're right. Or if they were, you know, uh, anyway, Phil DiGiuseppe, you're right, could be an essential part of this Canucks lineup on opening night with the way it's trending. As you said, there's always something to take from a preseason game, right? It always has potential ramifications. There's always and, something to take from now- Ticton. There's always something to take from training camp. It all matters, and that's why we break it all down here. And and now it all matters for Phil DiGiuseppe Indeed. as well. That will do it for us today. Another supersized extended edition of Canucks Hour in the books. We'll be back tomorrow, this time slot, all week, 10 to noon, two hours a day, two Canucks hours 
uh, a day here on 650. The People's Show, up next. Big Nazar, Randy Janda. It's your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.